Reveal. Exploration. Welcome to Knickknack News. I'm Anthony. And I'm Alex. And my first story today is technology news. All right, this is from businessinsider.com, and it's about new airplane technology. <gasps> Your I favorite. Found more. This is my second favorite next to delish.com food news. <laughs> <laughs> we okay. need to start a ranking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, like a topics ranking. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, for both of us. Okay, so bears would be on the list. Bears would definitely be on the list, yeah. Um, random things from delish.com <laughs> would be on the list. <laughs> and you. airplane tech for me. Actually, actually I've brought a, I think I've brought delish before. But I'll think anyway. about this later. I might make this list. Okay, anyway, the headline is, Airbus has revealed three zero-emission plane designs that could become reality in just 15 years, which is a long time from now. That but seems yeah. like a really long time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, later in the article, they said that they were like, in five years, we'll have the fuel technology ready, and, and then in 10 years, it'll take to actually develop the planes. It's like, okay, I guess in airplane time, that's... Kind of makes sense. In airplane time. <laughs> <laughs> airplane industry time. Everybody's favorite scale of time. Um, airplane time. So, making air travel truly sustainable is one of the biggest challenges facing the airline and aerospace industries. Now, Airbus says it's ready to make the next big leap. The European plane maker unveiled three brand new concepts for the world's first zero-emission commercial aircraft. Each concept serves a different purpose, but each is powered by hydrogen rather than traditional jet fuel. Hmm. Hydrogen is a relatively new alternative fuel concept for aviation. Until recently, most low- and zero-emission aircraft concepts focused on electricity. Until now. (laughs) I had to. Um, Although although airlines have taken steps to reduce emissions, most of those are negated by market growth, and most of them are smaller incremental steps. But to make a real impact, an alternative to jet fuel uh, would be crucial. So now Airbus says the new planes could enter commercial service as soon as 2035 because basically they they're just announcing that they have viable they have vi- they have created designs that they think are viable to actually produce at this point so they like announced that okay. and they have um three different like concept art designs of planes that they came up with mm-hmm. um that um which I will talk about in a second um they are considering two methods of using hydrogen to power the aircraft This isn't that much detail, but I'm going to say this anyway. The first, hydrogen combustion, works the same way as normal internal combustion, as a normal internal combustion engine, but it just burns hydrogen instead of fossil fuels. Okay. Like, okay. Sure. And then the second, hydrogen fuel, hydrogen fuel cells, um, they convert energy stored in hydrogen and oxygen atoms to generate electricity. And that's the full detail that the article went into. So. Great. I, I'm going to say, okay. Sounds great. But. Sounds, yeah. Sounds pretty simple. Why didn't we think of this before? Um, Okay, so the one out of, okay, so like I said, there were three concept arts that they released, but I'm just going to talk about the one because that's the one that that I liked because the other two just looked like normal planes. (laughs) Okay. So this one's futuristic. It's called the Zero E Blended Wing Aircraft. Um, And it's the only one with a radically different design than airplanes of today. (laughs) Radical. Uh, it will give engineers and potential future customers the most options to play with. And by that, they mean the the design of the body of the plane uh, gives a lot of options for, like, where to put the fuel and also, like, how to lay out, like, the cabins of where people are sitting. Okay. Um, and it would carry up to 200 passengers. And this is what it looked like. Whoa. That's yeah, it's very different, right? Looks like a UFO, but with wings. That's kind of accurate. Um, yeah, because <laughs> it's like a triangle. 
<laughs> with like wings kind of coming off the like back a, of it. It kind of looks like a like a bulbous stealth jet. Like those like triangular looking jets. <laughs> yeah. But like it's got a bulge in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a it's a bulbous stealth jet. It's a stealth jet that's kind of let itself go a little it's, bit. It's a, it's a stealth jet that's been going through quarantine like the rest of us. <laughs> yeah, yes, that's what this is. There's that's nothing wrong is. with that. We eat for comfort. I, yeah, there is nothing wrong with that. Um, I, I will post a picture of this somewhere on social media um, so y'all can see it. But yeah, so they're, they're just saying like they, they haven't figured – like there's probably going to be different ways that this could be like laid out like with cool like futuristic cabin design and stuff. So, yeah. And it's going to be all hydrogen powered and it's all clean energy. So That's exciting. Yeah. My first story is health news. Because it's health news and you know what it's about. Yeah. Uh, This is from CNBC. From trick-or-treating to apple picking, CDC ranked fall activities based on COVID-19 risk. And I mostly brought this article because it is so stupid. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, okay, I'm ready. This is the most unnecessary article I think I've ever brought to the show. Oh, wow. Okay, I'm very much anticipating this now. And I'm so excited to make fun of it with you. Okay, Okay, I'm ready. (laughs) With holidays like Halloween on the horizon, many people are wondering how and if they can safely gather during a pandemic. They can't. They can't. They can't. can't. That's to answer that first question. (laughs) Even with costume masks and activities moving outdoors, fall events and gatherings pose a risk for COVID-19 transmission. They do. Of course they do. If there's more than one person, there's a risk. The Centers for Disease Control released guidelines on September 21st that outline how to stay safe this fall. Here's what you need to know about the risk of various activities. So here we have a list of activities and their associated risks. Is there like a scale of risk? The risk is just from low to high. Oh, okay. But (laughs) Okay. Yeah. All right. Um... Sorry, it's this is so unnecessary. Okay. So the first the first activity is apple and pumpkin picking, which they have ranked at moderate risk. Um, it's important to wear a mask, keep your hands clean when handling pumpkins or apples, and maintain social distance from other parties. Duh, duh. Why duh, wouldn't you do duh, that? Duh, 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 duh. We duh, know duh. this already. We've been <laughs> we've been in this for six months. We know. Also, be sure to wash apples or other freshly picked produce before eating. Do that do outside not, of yeah, our like, pandemic. Wait, do do you that, not already do that? Are you, like, like, just going straight to the orchard and just eating it off the tree? Are you just, like, <laughs> just picking an apple off and just eating it from an orchard where there's been, like, pesticides and stuff? Yeah. Also, pumpkins? Like, yeah, I mean, were included in that as well? They didn't say specifically washing pumpkins. Okay, because, because that's, that makes no sense. Let's calm down. I mean, if you're going to eat the pumpkin, I guess. <laughs> if you're going to eat the outside of the, if you're just going to, like, if bite you're just into mon- the pumpkin. munch on a pumpkin. <laughs> I don't know why I said munch. Um... <laughs> Speaking of pumpkins, the next activity is pumpkin carving, which is a low risk because you can do it by yourself. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm dying. Car- carving pumpkins with people in your household or outdoors a safe dif- distance from others is considered low risk. Of course it is. Of course it is. It's a solo activity. What are you talking about? Carving pumpkins by yourself at home is a low-risk activity, uh, you think? All right. <laughs> Costume parties or parades, moderate to high risk. It's not high? Because what? it's a party. <laughs> Having an outdoor socially distant costume party or parade in which everyone wears protective cloth face masks is one way to mitigate your risk while dressing up. So that's the moderate version is you have an outdoor socially distanced party. Which, duh. I mean, um, yeah, like... Okay. You should avoid going to a costume party that's indoors. You should avoid going to any party that's indoors. We're in a pandemic. 
<laughs> a costume mask also can't replace your protective cloth face mask. A costume mask. If you need to be told that, <laughs> I, I don't know what to do. Wait, wait you mean my, my, uh, um, my, oh my gosh, Mike Myers mask right. with the like air holes for the mouth yeah. doesn't count? You mean a mask with something literally called air holes in it isn't a good idea? If you're not able to move a costume party outdoors, the safest thing is to, is to stay home and make it virtual instead. Thanks. Okay. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks, thanks NBC or CDC or whoever actually said that part. Um, <laughs> hayrides, high risk. Although hayrides take place outdoors, the CDC ranks, ranks them as a high risk activity. <laughs> the reason? Typically on a hayride, you sit close to other passengers, including people who are not part of your household. <laughs> this, is a yeah. list, this is a ranking of fall activities for people who have never participated in a fall activity yeah, before. <laughs> Oh, I've never done a hayride before. Maybe we can do that in the pandemic. Is like that? No. Is that the audience? Of I the guess. Thing? Yeah. Like, it's like where you if it's a hayride where like is? you're driving the tractor and also you're riding in that. Like if it's your or family, or if it was just like, only your family and right. no one else on if it's it, your household, I could see that, then maybe, sure. But, like, but then you have to go. I don't know. Just, Ugh. just yeah. It's yeah. hayrides. Why? So oh, right. maybe because you're sitting shoulder to shoulder with strangers I've... on a hayride. <laughs> if you've ever Even been on a hayride, it's like yeah, but you're. All right. Trick-or-treating. High risk. Uh, you think? Going door-to-door collecting treats from different households is not advised during a (laughs) pandemic. I just read that verbatim. (laughs) That's what this article had the nerve to say. The the CDC recommends one-way trick-or-treating instead, which means you put out individually wrapped bags of candy for people to take from an appropriate distance. Sure, that seems lovely. <laughs> just make sure they're yeah. keeping their distance from his... I guess that's not your responsibility at that point. If you just put some candy outside and people can take it. Yeah. Have you seen those pictures of, like, people coming up with, like, concepts of what to do on Halloween? And somebody came up with, like, a sh- like a shoot. Like, it was, oh, like, a yeah. slide all the way to the sidewalk I saw somebody who had, like a, like, a zip line that had, like, a ghost on it or oh, something. Oh, yeah, like that kind of stuff. And, like, would bring the candy out, which is... That's it's kind of clever. Yeah. So there are ways to do it, but, yeah, just, like, going door-to-door during a pandemic... Just uh, like strangers' good. houses, yeah. Not a good idea. No. Um, finally, this is by far the worst and oh the my best goodness. one. Haunted houses. <laughs> High risk. <laughs> Most people scream inside haunted houses, <laughs> which can produce more respiratory droplets than talking or breathing. <laughs> Would I have taken the time to think about that fact that screaming produces more yeah. respiratory droplets? That's a fair if point. If I hadn't read this article? Probably not. It's a decent point. So I just kind of learned something yeah. right now. They also pointed out that they're often indoors, so. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that, I, I should stop witch cackle laughing, but this is. <laughs> it's fitting. This it's is a Halloween very thing. Very yeah. funny. Yeah, yeah. This is, this is very good. This is. <laughs> So, yeah, I just wanted to bring that Full article because, wow, if any of you needed to know that, I'm so sorry. <laughs> this is the article for somebody that, like, was in an underground bunker for the, that like, by choice. Literally the under a rock for, like, for the rest, the past the, the, however many this years. This year so far. And emerged, they came out and they're like, oh, it's Halloween time. into a pandemic and was like. And there's a pandemic. Yeah. And they don't know. And they're reading this article. That's yeah. who that's for. 
which if they managed to find an online article after having lived in that situation for that long, I don't know. I don't. I... My next story is food news. This is from delish.com, of course. And the headline is, Michelob Ultra will pay you $50,000 to live in a van, take photos of nature, and drink beer. Seems like there's a lot of these promotions <laughs> where they just want you to go live in a vehicle for a while. I know. Why? There's been I a don't couple know. of them at least now. So, <laughs> this week in strange job postings, um, <laughs> Michelob Ultra is looking for a new chief exploration officer, air okay. quotes. Yeah, sure. Anthony's rolling his eyes. Um, <laughs> who can do the extremely important work of traveling across the U.S. for six months to various national parks and other beautiful places in partnership with the National Parks Foundation. Your only responsibility would be to connect with nature and take pictures that um, the beer company can share on their social media channels. So they basically want you to be like an Instagram influencer that's like traveling around for their company. Okay. That sounds kind of fun. It does. I think I don't think I'd be good at it, but I think I'd enjoy doing it. Um, if you get the position, the company will provide you with a state-of-the-art van, whatever yeah. that means. I don't know what that's that not, even means. Not a huge motivation for me, but go Is it on. a minivan? Is it a... <laughs> Unmarked white van? I don't know. Oh, yeah. Uh, they'll give you gas money, beer. I don't know how much beer, but probably to like include in the photos, I'm assuming. Yeah, and not consume and, um, while driving the van. Also that. And uh, you get a salary of 50 grand. So It's not bad for ex- essentially an extended vacation. Yeah. Um, it sounds like they're only going to pick one. Well, they didn't say this, but I'm assuming they're only going to pick one person for this. So the competition will be tough. Um <laughs> They have also made it clear they'll be following CDC guidelines to make sure you have a safe and socially distant experience. Well, you'll be in a van Thank by you. yourself. Yeah. So <laughs> well, you'll be in a van. Um, but they said you're free. If you got this position, you'd be free to bring a spouse um, or partner or like a friend or your dog or like another person basically with you. So All you're not like yeah. totally isolated from society. Um, applications are open until September 30th. And uh, part of the application is you have to submit a photo showcasing your nature photography because they want to see if you can like oh, yeah. see, this take cool would, photos. This is where I would not do well. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. Don't think I qualify because I don't want to do that. But but maybe you're listening and you do know. Yeah. And if you listen in time, you could apply to this. And 50 if somebody, grand for six months of work, that's a pretty, pretty, it's a pretty good deal. It's a pretty good deal. I mean, you have to leave your life for six months. But like, if you can do that, then like, yeah. I feel and, like there's probably a lot of people right now who would be fine with leaving their life for six months. <laughs> Unfortunately, yeah, probably. Um, yeah, so... That is a thing that's happening, and you could drink beer and take nature photos for six months and get paid. My next story is archaeology news. This is from Gizmodo. 1,000-year-old precursor to stainless steel found in Iran, surprising archaeologists. Whoa. So... I don't know how exciting this is going to be for people who aren't interested in metallurgy, (laughs) but I found this incredibly fascinating, so hopefully other people do too. Hopefully you do, at least. Metalwork is cool. Yeah, I think, I I found this really interesting. Um, So ancient Persians were forging alloys made from chromium steel, which is commonly known as stainless steel, as early as the 11th century CE, according to new research published Tuesday in the Journal of Archaeological Science. I say that archaeological. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah. It felt weird in my mouth. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> 
This steel was likely used to produce swords, daggers, armor, and other items, but these metals also contained phosphorus, which made them fragile, which makes it seem bad for weapons and armor, but I guess they were still figuring it out. Hmm. Um, so archaeologists and historians were, up until this point, fairly certain that chromium steel, which is not to be confused with chrome, it's apparently a different thing, um, but they were fairly certain that it was a recent invention. Um, stainless steel as we know it today was developed in the 20th century and, cont- and contains far more chromium than the steel produced by these ancient Persians. Uh, Rahil uh, Alapur, the lead author of the new study and an archaeologist at University College London, said the ancient Persian chromium steel would not have been stainless. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So it would have rusted. That said, the new paper provides the earliest evidence for the consistent and intentional addition of a chromium mineral most likely chromite, to the crucible steel charge, resulting in the intentional production of a low chromium steel. Um, And I will get into what crucible steel is in a second. I was just going to ask that. Okay. (laughs) Um, So a translation of medieval Persian manuscripts led the research team to Chahak, an archaeological site in southern Iran. So they like translated some ancient manuscripts. It sounds, it all sounds very cool. Shahak uh, <laughs> used to be an important hub for the production of steel, and it is the only archaeological site in Iran with evidence of crucible steelmaking, in which iron is added to long tubular crucibles, which I think are like made out of like ceramic or some kind of like pottery or something. They didn't actually say. Hmm. Um, so it was added to these crucibles along with other minerals and organic matter, which were then sealed and warmed in a furnace, and after cooling down, an ingot was removed by breaking the crucible open. So basically they made like a mold out of some kind of material, heated up the metal inside of that, and then once it cooled, you had an ingot of that metal. Yeah. One manuscript offered instructions for forging crucible steel, but it included a mystery compound called rusaktaj, which means the burnt um, like literally translate to that. I thought you were going to say compound X. Compound X. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Essentially. Um, which the researchers interpreted and subsequent, subsequently, <laughs> I always mess it up, <laughs> subsequently identified as being a chromite sand. So hmm. this, the burnt was this chromite material. Interesting. Um, so Alipore said, previous crucible steel evidence studied by scholars belong to crucible steel production centers in India, Sri Lanka, Turkmenistan, and Uzbekistan. None of them showed any trace of chromium, so chromium as an essential ingredient of Chahak crucible steel production has not been identified in any other known crucible steel industry so far. To which she added, that is very important as we can now look for this element in crucible steel objects and trace them back to their production center or method. Oh. So now they know anything with this, with chromium in it was Came probably from, there. from this place, Chahak, in Iran. Awesome. So, yeah. Apparently stainless steel, they, I mean, not stainless, technically, <laughs> but they figured out... A kind this. of type of similar material to stainless steel. Right, and they like figured this out way sooner than we assumed and probably has pretty big well implications for metallurgy and archaeology yeah yeah <laughs> if nothing that's else. Re- that's interesting um but it's cool how they can like the last part of how they can now that they have that information they can like trace certain objects maybe back to that if they're right. like that old and they have maybe certain properties to them exactly yeah my next story is also archaeology news what 
somehow we both had that this week. Okay, this is from smithsonianmag.com. Ooh. And um, it's also kind of about metal, too, a little bit. Oh, weird. A little bit. Okay. The headline is, Millennia-old cookware may be the key to recreating ancient cuisine. So, ceramic cookware recovered at archaeological sites often contains the charred remains of food and similarly ancient residues. Researchers have long puzzled over how to interpret such finds. Until now. <laughs> I had to. Uh, <laughs> you do. It's required. Uh, a new study published in the journal Scientific Reports is poised to provide some guidance on this problem. A team of archaeologists prepared food in unglazed clay pots every week for a whole year and conducted chemical analyses on the materials left behind. Okay. <laughs> so... The experiments, ingredients, tools, and cleaning techniques strove to imitate ancient cooking practices as closely as possible. So the team prepared meals made out of whole grains like wheat and maize in unglazed black clay cookware. Co-author Christine Hastorf, an anthropologist at the University of Carolina, Berkeley, actually set up a mill in her garage to grind the grains, according to a statement. That is dedication. Oh, yeah. They went all in on this. Um also, somehow they got some donated roadkill deer that they also used in some of the dishes. And they okay. noted that they didn't actually eat any of the meals. The oh. whole point was to just cook food similar to what those people would have cooked, like, in the pots. And then after a long period of time, then analyze, like, the remains of the food in the pots. That was, like, the whole point of it. So they didn't actually, like, eat the food. Yeah, that makes sense. Um after each use, the chefs cleaned the pots with water and scrubbed them with branches from an apple tree. <laughs> <laughs> Specifically an apple tree. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know why an apple tree, but um, they didn't use any soap. And they just, yeah, they were just using, you know, that because that's probably what they had back then. Um, they tested three kinds of leftovers. Charred food, carbonized surface residues, and oils and fats that had seeped into the unglazed clay. And each one provided different insights on um, a different point in the culinary timeline of the pot. So of those three types of food remnant, the fats and oils that seep into the clay, um, they concluded that those are the most representative of the vessel's early history of like, or like over a long period of time, like how it was used uh, because it's like basically just accumulates over time, mm -hmm. which I think is something that happens in like cast iron pans too. Like oh, okay. just nowadays too, like that's why like people like using cast iron because after you've used it for a lot, it gets kind of like, like, it has, like, flavoring, like, in it from right. other stuff you've cooked. So I think that was kind of the same idea here. Like, they were saying that, like, you know, it would, like, collect kind of residues based on what was often cooked in the pot. So they looked at that to with, like, the tests that they did, like, the meals that they tried cooking. And they looked at, like, what residue did this leave behind and what did this leave behind. And now that they have that data, they can actually, like, apply that to the real pots that they found and, like, what types of foods maybe the people that lived in that community favored. Um, and one of the authors said that this data can help better reconstruct um, not just the meals and specific ingredients that people consumed in the past, but it can also shed light on social, political, and environmental relationships within ancient communities. Hmm. Wow. That's a really, that's an unusual approach to solving that problem, I feel like. Yeah, isn't it? The, cook, the cooking <laughs> Like They're in, like, like ancient well, people for a year. We have these pots and there's residue in them. Maybe we can just try cooking in similar pots and seeing what residue it leaves behind and yeah. then we'll know what they did. 
Yeah, and theoretically, you wouldn't have to cook for that long to get a similar result because presumably, like, they wouldn't have used those pots for, like, ever. Yeah, presumably, yeah, assuming. Yeah, Yeah, like, they did it for a year, which already is a really long time. It's a pretty long time, yeah. And they did it once a week. They cooked something in the pot every week for a whole year. Yeah. It's a (laughs) dedication. Yeah. My last story is food news. Kind of kind of fitting, I guess. Well, except when you yeah. actually hear what it's about. Okay. Uh, this is from CNN. Taco Bell is now selling its own custom wine. No. Yep. <laughs> You're kidding. Yeah, they but don't get wine. too excited. It's it's already gone. Um, oh. But, uh, yeah. Well, I don't know if I even was going to buy it, but That's fair. It, I'm still sad. I mean, for I would have, but you know that. <laughs> Taco Bell is debuting its own custom wine called Jalapeno Noir. Oh, God. It's jalapeno flavored? It doesn't Ew. actually sound like it is. Oh. Which is, I think it's just, it called? I don't know. <laughs> does anything Taco Bell does make sense? I feel like I keep, I keep making assumptions and then they're wrong. I, yeah, should, just, <laughs> I should just wait. <laughs> um, so the wine is meant to pair with its new toasted cheesy chalupa, which is the... <laughs> Stupidest sentence I think I've ever said in my life. Um, the combination is only available for a limited time in Canada <laughs> to what? celebrate the launch of the menu item. Uh, Taco Bell Canada said in a release, the duo is, quote, irresistible, adding that, quote, the rich taste and crunchy texture of the beloved toasted cheesy chalupa <laughs> complements notes of wild strawberry, cherry, and beetroot in the silky limited edition red wine. <laughs> This is so bizarre. How is it beloved is if like it's a new menu item? Anyway, the toasted cheesy yeah. chalupa or whatever. It seems like it seems like that is also a new menu there. item. Yeah, I mean, I don't go to Taco Bell. Okay, yeah, I then that didn't new. make sense. Yeah, it's well, it hasn't come to the states yet, so I think it's new. Mm. Um, the wine is made at an Ontario, Canada vineyard, so they went local for this. Oh, okay. Uh, the wine costs, or did cost, twenty-five Canadian dollars, or about nineteen U.S. dollars. Fans were able to buy it on Taco Bell's Canada website or in some locations in Ontario. Uh, the wine still won't be sold in the United States once the same once the same Chalupa rolls out in November. From the sound of it, it was like a limited batch anyway. They just like oh. worked with a local winemaker and said, "Hey, will you put this label?" Oh, on that's too bad. Something like that, yeah. Um, and I also found another article about this on a website called WineSpectator.com. All right. Which All pointed right. out that the wine on the website sold out 11 minutes after it went live. <laughs> I believe that. Like, I don't know if they had a ton to mm. begin with, but still, like, that is, that's really fast for some Taco Bell branded wine. But, uh, yeah, Jalapeno Noir. I just don't, I don't know why, but the one sentence you read about that was, like, the statement from the company about wine pairing with their, like, cheesy chalupa or whatever. <laughs> uh-huh. Or, like, and, like, the notes in the wine. Like, that right. seemed like something from another reality. Like, yeah. I don't. <laughs> Taco Bell talking about <laughs> wine notes. <laughs> yeah, like, I just, mm. just something about it was just, like, is this the real life? The seven-layer burrito has uh, hints of <laughs> bean and because it's uh, like tomato i think because it's this weird mix of like classy with taco bell, taco bell. which is just not their brand yeah, at really all they do have like the taco bell cantina which is i think their attempt at classing it up but I what is that it's a oh you haven't heard of taco bell cantina no we, we have one in downtown uh in oh no i don't, I don't know but uh it's a taco bell where they also sell alcoholic beverages <laughs> so it's oh. basically like a taco bell bar combo 
And I desperately, okay. I desperately want to go. Okay. And I, and I never have. Maybe that's, maybe they're trying to like go in that direction. They're like trying to move their brand. It's like, we see, we can be classy too. We can be, a, yeah. we can be hip. Highbrow, lowbrow. <laughs> it's, all, <laughs> it's a combination. I found out recently that Taco Bell doesn't have potatoes anymore. Yep. Yeah. They recently made some, they've recently made a lot of changes to their menu. I that, think mostly to simplify their supply chain. Mm. But potatoes got the axe. I think their Mexican pizza also was removed. Oh. Well, the only thing I pretty much ordered from Taco Bell was that, like, potato burrito thing. Oh, yeah. Well, that's gone. And it's gone now. So. Sorry. I'm sad now. Yeah. I mean, I usually only get their quesadilla, and that is still there. Plus Baja Blast. Yeah, I know the Baja Blast. I don't think we'll ever get rid of Baja Blast. (laughs) All right. It's time for breaking news. The part of the show where Anthony and I look for stories that just happened today or were just posted today. And we read them to you on the fly. Chromium. Ready, set, go! Okay, this is from delish.com. And the headline is, Pumpkin Spice Macaroni and Cheese is coming this fall thanks to Kraft Dinner. No. And the subtitle is, no. Okay, so, yeah. So, and I was was laughing a lot at this because the person that wrote this article for Delish is like, like the whole thing is written very like sarcastically. Like they clearly think this is a bad idea. (laughs) And it's just really, really funny. Um, So I'm going to read some excerpts like straight from this, like. Um, so first of all, apparently this is being sold in Canada and over there, craft macaroni. What is going on in Canada? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Some, some weird things are happening. Um, the same company is called Craft Dinner or KD, I guess, over there. And so this stuff is branded that way, but that's why they explain it. Um, okay, so this person is, says, KD has gone to a dark, dark place this fall <laughs> because the company announced it's giving away pumpkin spice craft Dinner. This mac and cheese will come in cups that resemble coffee cups. And according to a statement no. by the company, with your name written on it, spelled wrong, which seems to be a slam against baristas for some reason. That, why, why did they go and the, there? I don't know. The concoction will be made with classic KD cheese powder with added flavors like hints of cinnamon, nutmeg, allspice, oh. and ginger. God, no. <laughs> if you're you're looking to give it a try you can go online and join the wait list at on their website where you'll be notified if you're one of the 1000 canadians chosen to try it for free if you're in the u.s well you can get yourself a normal box of mac and cheese sprinkle some pumpkin spice mix into it and then make it for yourself if that's something you really want for yourself or just eat some mac and cheese and pretend this never happened (laughs) that's what they wrote I'm like picturing those. It comes in a coffee cup. That's so so weird. That's very weird. (laughs) I'm just like picturing these flavors together and it just, I can't, I can't think of a proportion in which they work. Cinnamon I can't and cheese? either. Like the cheese, like the 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 powder that comes with like craft mac uh-huh. and cheese, like that powder w- mixed with pumpkin spice. It's like just Cinnamon seems so just, wrong. Oh god, I'm getting sick to my stomach just thinking about it. That's, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't no, mean to make no, no, no. I'm just like, <laughs> I didn't want that happen. It's oh, just, god. it's just like we're going a little overboard with the pumpkin spice. Yeah, a little bit. I love pumpkin spice as much as the next person. I do. Yeah, I don't think there's anything wrong but, with enjoying pumpkin spice things. Just like. We don't have to make it everything, right? No, we don't. We don't have to mix it with cheese. <laughs> we don't. Please, leave the cheese alone. <laughs> leave the cheese out of this. 
<laughs> All right, I found this on Gizmodo. Record-breaking whale stays underwater for mind-bending three hours and 42 minutes. Whoa. Whales need to breathe air. Wait, what? How long do they... How long can a normal whale breathe underwater? So... Um, like, I know it's longer than a human, they talk but, like, ab- they still breathe. They talk about what their models predicted, and so I'll get into okay, that. Okay, okay, okay. Um, they didn't say, like, how long... I guess the oh. the reason they're studying this is because they don't necessarily know how long certain species oh, okay. of whales can go down thought, that was something underwater okay. for that. But uh, so yeah. marine biologists are astonished after a Cuvier's Cuvier's <laughs> Cuvier's beaked whale held its breath for nearly four <laughs> hours during a deep dive. Wow. Um, so they recorded this dive. Uh, one of the whales stayed underwater for nearly three hours, and then a week later did the three hour and forty two minute dive. And they like they were just they couldn't believe it. I have to let me find these actual numbers down here. They were studying these. They record. They had I think twenty three whales tagged, and they got like three thousand something dives. These were obviously oh, by, wow. these were by far the longest ones, but they were still seeing a lot of really long ones. Yeah. Oh, here it is. Going into the study, the scientists had estimated a maximum length of thirty three minutes for the deep dives. Huh. After which time the whales need to resurface and and breathe oxygen. Yeah. Um. So that was like. They had guessed 33 minutes, and then this whale's like, uh, hold my whale beer. Um, <laughs> which is regular beer just for whales. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so, yeah. So, yeah, in total, they recorded more than 3,600 dives, the median duration of which was clocked at 59 minutes. So the median was thir- 59. The shortest wow. dive was actually 33 minutes, which was their guess. <laughs> their minimum time. And the longest one outside of the record-setting ones was 2 hours and 13 minutes. So still quite long and, like, over four times longer than the wow. production. Um, so with this date on hand, they had to revise their models uh, which led to a new estimate of 77.7 minutes, which is still obviously too too little. Like, I don't really... Apparently, their yeah. model needs to account for something. Um, that's, yeah. That's, that's pretty much what the rest of the article is about, is, like, the, the scientists are obviously missing something about these whales and their ability to stay underwater for these extended periods right. of time. Yeah, okay. If I had just guessed how long a whale could stay underwater, I probably would have guessed, like, around, like, 40 minutes or something. Like... 40 or 45 that's probably what it like yeah not because i have any basis for that number but just that's what i naturally would have thought yeah oh, oh and here's another interesting one was another f- thing they noticed for this a whale that, that there was like no correlation between how long they stayed under and how long they needed to recover at the surface oh. they had like one whale that dove for two hours but just stayed up for 20 minutes before going back down but they had another whale that only dove for six or seventy-eight minutes and stayed on the surface for four hours. So, like, there's no clear link between like how long they stay down and how long they stay up either. So, there's just <laughs> this this study. Apparently, they said it raises more questions than it answers, and I'd say that's pretty <laughs> fair. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I well, maybe just they just like being on the surface for like a while, just to hang out there. You know, maybe yeah. it's just like comfortable. Yeah, right? like, I don't know. So maybe that's not really like seeing how long that they're there doesn't really indicate anything. Which is, yeah, that's what they showed. So right, yeah. So we have. Wow, I guess there's lots still to learn so much there. we have to learn. Yeah. Oh, there's always more to learn. There's always more science to do. I love it. 
Okay, that's our show. Thanks for listening, everybody. We post episodes every Friday. And as always, the links to this week's stories will be in the episode description. You can subscribe to Knickknack News on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. And you can follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash News, on Twitter at at News, and on Instagram at News. <laughs> All right, we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.